Chronicles. Welcome back. I'm Angela Brown. And I'm Joshua Thompson. And this is Melanated Moments in Classical Music. (laughs) Joshua. Y'all, we have had some awesome, heavy-hitting guests on season two that have opened our hearts and minds and attitudes about what music is out there that is for, by, and about Black people. I mean, there is so much more to uncover, and we are just tipping the iceberg on the wonderful contributions that Blacks have made in music actually going all the way back to the American Negro spiritual. I know that is right, (laughs) but people don't know that the American Negro spiritual is actually the only original. That's a key point, right? Because we're going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. The only original musical art form that is strictly American in nature. And it was created out of the slave fields of the South, which we all know is this horrible time in American and global history. But you know how we do, Angela. We turn something wretched into something beautiful. Okay. And Joshua, a lot of people think that singing a spiritual is singing gospel music. But baby, I'm here to tell you today, that is not the truth. But before, (laughs) before I get too far ahead of myself, as I usually do, I want to say I am so excited to welcome Dr. Everett McCorvey, founder and conductor of the American Spiritual Ensemble with us today. Now, this is a quote that was taken from their website. The American Spiritual Ensemble's mission is to preserve and continue the tradition of storytelling through the performance and preservation of the American Negro spiritual. These melodies now stand as a testament of the strength found through faith during times of hardship, as well as a unifying force among all peoples. These songs are beloved around the whole world today. Absolutely. I love that, that tradition of musical storytelling. And you're absolutely right. Now, I understand, Angela, because you know where everybody and you've done all the things. Mm. You're, You're actually a part of this ensemble as well. But before you regale us a plenty with your stories, and I'm sure they are uh, quite legendary, <laughs> um, let's go ahead and get Dr. McCorvey on the mic, shall we? Yes, let's do that. Melanated moments, please welcome Dr. Everett McCorvey. Yes. Hello, hello. How are you? Oh, welcome. Fine. Welcome, welcome. Honey, come to the welcome table. We are just going to sit here and feast and learn about the American Negro spiritual. Tell me, Doc, how important is the American Negro spiritual to the actual quilt or tapestry of American music? Well, I think that the American Negro spiritual is to a quilt like fabric is to the quilt. Mm. And uh, so uh, the American Negro spiritual, I call it the mother music of American music. And from the spiritual came many forms of American music. Jazz, blues, gospel came out of those forms. But the mother music, the music that got it all started in this country was the spiritual. Think about the fact that uh, we have just gone through, you know, the 400th anniversary of the, the enslaved stepping foot on American soil. 
And before then, the music that was American was not really American. It was a Mm -hmm. hybrid of what the Europeans had brought to this country. So Mm. Irish and French and German, Mm -hmm. British. This was the music because America really had not found its voice. And then you had the advent of the spiritual happening. And then after the spiritual, America began began to find its voice uh, because it took a lot of the styles that were created during spirituals and created by spirituals and sort of transformed into what we know now as, of course, jazz, blues, gospel, pop, Broadway, all of those you know, all of those genres can be traced back in some way to the spiritual. Wow. And, and I love that you're making these distinctions, Dr. McCorvey, because I have a legitimate question for myself. A lot of times myself and others hear the term spiritual and we automatically think that spiritual and gospel are one and the same. Mm-hmm. So where is the difference between the two or is there a difference um, because we are still putting this in this in this wonderful canon of classical music to which it absolutely fits. But how do you frame this so that we can highlight those distinctions so we can kind of help tell this this narrative, this musical storytelling like your ensemble is is dedicated to do? Well, thank you. And that's a very good question. And And actually, it was one of the reasons that I started the American Spiritual Ensemble. When I finished college and I started working professionally, uh, what I noticed fairly early was that uh, gospel music and spirituals were being sort of lumped into the same category. And your audience will probably remember, and you write, you probably will remember the company Tower Records. Did you ever yeah. go into Tower Records in New York? I'm sure Angela did. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I would always think of going into a place like Tower Records and going to the classical music section or folk music section and looking for spirituals. And the only way I could find it is if it was clumped under gospel music. And I thought, well, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. these aren't the same things. Mm -hmm. And uh, the spirituals were here before gospel music. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you a couple of, I guess, definitions. We'll start with the spiritual as let's call the spirituals, the folk songs of the American Uh Negro slaves. Oh, I love that. That helps. That helps. Yeah. And so these were songs that were created in the cotton fields. These were songs Mm -hmm. that were created during, you know, as you mentioned earlier, a very Mm -hmm. difficult time in our history. And they started off as simple melodies. Mm -hmm. And these melodies were then call and response, which was another American musical form that grew out of of slavery. Uh-huh. One person would sing and another person would respond to that singing. And so in spirituals, you it's typically a simple melody, mm-hmm. either sung a cappella or with one accompanying instrument, typically a djembe or an African drum. Mm-hmm. And then the more modern arrangements will have piano. But that's pretty much it that you will find in the spiritual. The gospel really came on in the early 1900s, 1920s and 1930s, which when gospel music came sort of into light. And in gospel music, it's a more popular uh, musical form. 
you typically have, um, you know, maybe drums, uh, like a drum set. You might have uh, guitars uh, playing as well. Uh, and so there are more popular music type instruments that play along with the gospel music. The text is typically, you know, maybe a New Testament uh, text, typically not a lot of words, but a phrase that is repeated over and over. And so it distinguishes itself from the spiritual in that it's a much more popular music form. Okay. Now, I can tell you the whole history of how it got there. But uh, Not before you do, <laughs> because we are riveted by the conversation, but we want to get at least one song in here. But here's the thing, I didn't even know that you, I, now I'm going to start calling gospel music, I'm going to start calling it pop spiritual. I like that. <laughs> I love that. But one of the songs, I think, hitting on one of the different types of um, spirituals that we may hear is a call and response spiritual. And I think true religion is like that. Wouldn't you uh, agree, Doc? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's listen to true religion by, give me the composer, Doc. Roland Carter. (laughs) Thank you. You must have that true religion. That's right, by Roland Carter. Must have that true religion, or you can't prosper. Where have you been? 
say who the soloists were, but they were our own beloved Angela Brown. (laughs) I tell you, Doc, I love singing with the American Spiritual Ensemble. Tell me, um, (laughs) how long has the American Spiritual Ensemble been in existence? Well, we just finished uh, right before COVID started in March when the world shut down. We were we were at the end of our 25th anniversary. Uh, and so uh, 2021 is our 26th anniversary of the group. I started it in 1995. Uh-huh. And uh, I started it, uh, as I mentioned earlier, because I wanted to really help to solidify the place, the spirituals in the place of the musical canon. And uh, my first year, I, I got some of my graduate students from my university. I teach at the University of Kentucky uh-huh. and a few professional friends. And we started and then the popularity of the group uh, sort of came on so fast that I had to stop using students per se that were you know in class. And, and just audition professional singers. And so now it's an all professional group and we are the only group in the United States that's solely dedicated to the preservation of the American Negro spiritual. So wow. we are very excited about that. Uh-huh. And we have a roster of about 125 singers. Wow. Uh, we only tour with about 24, 25 singers. And you know, they are all professional in their own areas, mm-hmm. professional singers. And we are happy to take you anytime that you are available. <laughs> and you know, I jump at the opportunity to sing with the ensemble whenever I can. So yeah. now tell me how I know how we all get together and produce this high quality music, but how is it that you can have singers, a roster of over 100 singers, all professional singers, and come together to, to make this beautiful music? How do you put it all together? And how do you select who's going to be on tour? 
Well, I think that one of the things that I work on is when you are developing a group like this, you have to be specific in the types of voices that you uh, hire. You know, you're going to hire a soprano. There, there are in the in the world of singing. You know, you have four or five different types of sopranos. It's not just a generic soprano. Right. And uh, and so in my group, I'm typically looking for three types of sopranos. I'm looking for a soprano who lives in the stratosphere. I'm looking for a soprano who is very comfortable in the middle of her voice. And I'm looking for a soprano that's in the comf- comfortable in the lower part. Now, that's just soprano. So you have that same thing for mezzos and the same for tenor, baritone, and bass. So I'm looking for specific voices. Mm-hmm. And the reason the roster is so large is when someone auditions, they don't audition to get in the group per se. They audition to get on the roster. Oh. And so that down the road, you know, depending on what what the needs are, if I need a, a stratospheric soprano, then I'm going to go to my roster and look for that type of soprano. Not mm-hmm. all the sopranos on the roster can sing in that manner. Sure. So I look for that. And then uh, the the group that was on tour gets the right of first refusal for the next tour. Ah. So that's why if Angela's on tour and then I may offer her the next tour, but she's not available, then I have to go to my roster to try to find somebody like Angela. And of course, that's a hard road to fill. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you might have soprano A through Z, but you need... Right. That's uh, right. Uh, so, job, you man. don't have an AB soprano, Angela Brown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now. All right. <laughs> so... So, you know, but that's how I choose. And so when a person's not available and I need to fill a slot, it's a specific slot. And that's why it's important for me to hold auditions every year so that I can continue to keep the roster. We have some people on the roster who've never been out on tour. And uh, it's just that, you know, their their particular voice type, you know, hasn't come, you know, hasn't come up. Uh, so we audition every year in New York, and then I will choose the group for the tour, and we go from there. So, Dr. McCorvey, I love how you you have set all of this up because you're so particular about the voices that you need because there has to be a level of expertise coupled with authenticity for this ensemble. And I go back to the need for that because this is musical storytelling. We're going to hear in a couple other spirituals, but what is the story that is typically being told? Or what are the stories to be told by these voices from past and present that makes this genre what it is and that allows it to fit so wonderfully into the canon that we know of as classical music? Well, I think that the reason I emphasize storytelling is because these songs didn't come out of a vacuum. They came out of a very difficult period in our American history. And these songs came up as a result of experiences that the people who created them uh, had in their life. And so each of these songs tell a story and it's incumbent upon us to 
as we are introducing this music and performing this music, if the piece has a story, which most of them do, we want to make sure that we spend the time to learn the story because then we are going to be able to more effectively tell the tell the story if we know the story. If we don't know the story, then it's going to be very difficult for us to tell that story and perform that uh, spiritual, as you say, authentically. And, right. uh, and so I like to spend time on every piece creating a story, telling the story so that as the performers are presenting it, then they can also translate that story, which will mean that the audience will be able to experience that uh, that story. And so all of these pieces say something. And somebody asked me one time, well, how do you know how to, you know, how do you know how to shape it and all like that? And And this is really true. I feel like I'm being guided by my ancestors. Mm, say that now, absolutely. Absolutely, I love yes. that. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and I'll so- tell you, Well, Doc, I think that's a perfect segue into this next spiritual that we want to highlight. Right, because I, I want another story. I want to hear another story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doc, we have a wonderful spiritual that we want to highlight entitled Soon I Will Be Done. And the Sopranos are Karen Slack Blackwell and Gerald Cunningham.
So, so many questions, so many things go through our head. There's, there's something about these Angela and Dr. McCorvey, especially this piece for me, where very, very quickly, from the very beginning, that such low, low, there is a swirling and a growing, it is a village, it is a community speaking to, singing of, in around, and in tandem of this shared experience. And whatever faith you belong to or not, it is absolutely impossible not to get taken underneath the undertow of this piece. And it's just so well done and just so moving. Yes. And you can feel, I mean, the actual, the slaves in the field working and toiling. And and Dr. McCorvey, and, and to speak on that, are spirituals religious necessarily in nature? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, we we call them spirituals, and uh, because you know, there's writing of spirit-filled music, and ah. uh, then it began to because the music had spirit. Uh, it's mentioned in in a book that uh, these spirituals, and uh, so it sort of took on that that name, but you have work mm-hmm. songs, you have field songs, yeah. Yeah. camp meeting type songs. Uh, it just really depend on the, you know, the environment because the slaves were allowed to go to church mm-hmm. because the mass, their slave masters thought if they went to church and if they learned Christianity, it would make them more docile. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the reasons why they were allowed to go to church. But you know, as the slaves went to church and they learned about the characters in the Bible and mm-hmm. how God protected the least of those that were in the Bible. Yes. The slaves wondered, well, if God protects the least of those, will he protect me? Mm-hmm. And so that and they went and, you know, created songs about what they had learned in church. And so a large body of the works of mm-hmm. are, are um, sacred, but not all are sacred. You know, I want to set up that song a little bit sooner we'll be done. I want you to listen at the beginning of that song. You have the moaning and groaning. And and I want you to imagine the sound that would have happened as slaves were packed onto slave ships, where they were packed like sardines on slave ships, you know, hundreds, thousands and put in a way where they could not move and were in that position for months. Couldn't go to the bathroom, you know, would come up to be washed off with water and then go back down into these hulls. And that was the moaning and groaning that you hear. And that first solo is Gerald Cunningham Fleming, and she's wailing as she sings that first uh, part. And then Karen Slack comes on and sings, sooner we'll be done with the trouble of the world. And it is the, the foreboding feeling that the, their desires in this lifetime will not be met, but they will be met in another lifetime. And, uh, you know, then she goes on to the part about master and soul, my children, all of the horrible things that are coming and happening 
in this world. This is a powerful spiritual. The arranger is a guy by the name of Robert Jefferson, and he is one of the soldiers in the United States Soldiers Chorus. And so uh, I was actually introduced to this song when I was conducting the Soldiers Chorus in a concert and uh, have just loved it ever since. The performance, by the way, was in France. And uh, I uh, saw that. Yeah. What, what, what is there? Is there a I mean, obviously, authenticity and, and, and you're doing justice to the music always. Is it different doing Negro spirituals outside of America, outside of, you know, I don't know, like black yeah. audiences? What, what do Europeans think? Do they have an understanding connection? Do they take the deep dive with you to hear these narrative stories or um, what is that like? Is there a different preparation for regions and cultures that may not be as familiar with the origins or the stories themselves? This music is popular all over the world. Very and popular. It doesn't matter where we go. The uh, the music touches people. I mean, this this the last two pieces, You Must Have the True Religion and Sooner Will Be Done were uh, recorded in Nantes in the western part of France at a festival called the Faux-Journée Festival. And I'm telling you, we could have been singing, you know, English. It didn't matter because the music touched them in such a way that, you know, the group were like rock stars over there because this music goes much deeper than just, uh, you know, the words. It's, it's a combination of the words, the melodies, the intent, and the authenticity, as you say, that you can't help but be brought in to the power of this. You're right. So, yeah. so, Doc, tell me how the spiritual went from a field holler to the concert stage. Mm-hmm. That's a very good story and a very important story. As you can imagine that, you know, if we take a, a you know, a trip in history, we know that, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was in 1863, although some people in Texas didn't find out till 1865, uh-huh. in June of 1865, June. and hence we have the Juneteenth mm-hmm. uh, yes. celebration. Uh, but imagine that, uh, well, after slavery and after the Emancipation Proclamations, Blacks didn't really want to hear this music because it was it reminded them of such a horrible time. But there are a couple of things going on in the, in the United States, one of them being the emergence of Black colleges in the South, because now that you had all of these slaves who are now free, the enslaved were now free, they also were free and many were uneducated. And so the Presbyterian Church and many organizations sent educators into the South to open up universities so that students could go to school and be educated. And so there was also another thing that happened. Antonin Dvorak, who was the um, a Czech composer, um, came to this country in 1890 to head a conservatory in New York City called the National Conservatory of Music. And Dvorak came here with the proviso that he be allowed to take newly free Blacks into his school. And uh, and so they agreed to this. And so these new students of color introduced to Dvorak a wealth of 
of folk songs, a wealth of Negro spirituals. Dvorak knew how important uh, folk songs were because he had become famous as a composer in Czechoslovakia by taking folk songs and turning them into symphonies, into string quartets and things like that. And so, uh, so one of Dvorak's prized students here was a student by the name of Harry T. Burley. Mm-hmm. And Burley yes. and his colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, decided that they must write this music down for generations to come. And so they started writing this music down. While that was going on, what also had been going on was Fisk University was formed and, um, and the Fisk fell on hard times in the late 1800s. And so one of the things that they did was they created a choir and sent the choir out to different parts of the country and really throughout the world to raise money for Fisk University. And so they also performed what we call these concert spirituals, where they took the music and and wrote it down and presented it as a concert. So we really have the Fisk Jubilee Singers to thank, and we have the work of Dvorak and uh, Harry Burley and his colleagues to thank right. for taking the music from the, the cotton fields and putting it into the concert hall. Wow. So I've, I've got one other question, and, and I always love to end our episodes on a, on a good high note, right, when it comes to, uh, to the music and whatnot, but... My question would be, are these spirituals still being created? And what is the future of the spiritual? Because what you and the American Spiritual Ensemble are doing is vital preservationist, but also futuristic works for Black music and a broader canon. So the future of this of this subgenre, if you will, what is it? Who's creating new works? Feel free to brag on yourself about new stuff you have going on. Where, where does this where does this evolve to, um, and where is it going from your perspective? Well, I think first of all, the the work we do is the preservation of an art form, like you said, and it's uh, preservation of a cultural form. Uh, there are no new spirituals because the spirituals are, you know, there are about six thousand melodies. And these melodies have been arranged. We don't know who the composer of the spirituals are because they were, you know, enslaved people uh, over the past 400 years, during the 400 years of slavery. But what people are doing is they are writing spiritual-like melodies. They're taking some of the arrangements of they're taking some of the melodies and making new arrangements. And so that's what's happening now. Um, I was just listening just last night to Damien Sneed, who is, you know, writing. uh, I was listening to Larry Brownlee uh, Uh saying, come by here, a Damien Sneed arrangement. And it's fantastic. And it has a little jazz. It has a little Uh ragtime, has a little gospel all in the, accompaniment of a traditional Negro spiritual. And so that's what's happening now. And young composers are taking these melodies and making new arrangements. And some of them are quite, quite uh, exciting, like this arrangement of Robert Jefferson. Uh, We premiered a a new arrangement this summer of uh, Rise Shine, which was an uh, arrangement by Marcus Garrett, 
Marquez Garrett and uh, Stacy Gibbs is another yeah. arranger who's doing lots of arranging now of new work. So definitely the spiritual is taking its place in the American musical canon. And I'm excited to say I feel that part of that has been because of the work of the American Spiritual Ensemble to make sure that this music is not forgotten. Yes. Well, can we, do we have time to play one more? Just one more? Let's (laughs) listen to Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel. You needed somebody to live in the stratosphere, and her name was Angela Brown. She oh, oh, Doc, you know I love you, and I love the ensemble for being a part of my life and career for all these many years. And I thank God for allowing you all to touch my life, and I can call y'all well, family. Angela, I'm going to throw an amen on that. And uh, Dr. McCorvey, honestly, thank you for enlightening our audience and myself 
on the importance and the originality of preserving the American Negro spiritual, helping us figure out the difference between spirituals and gospels. So I hope, and I know the group's going to be traveling soon. I just hope that I get to go see you and uh, be able to catch at a performance. But until then, uh, I encourage all of our listeners to gobble up as much spirituals as possible. And until next time, I'm Joshua Thompson. And I'm Angela Brown. And, and this has been Melanated, Melanated Moments in, in Classical Music. music. <laughs> Season two of Melanated Moments in Classical Music was made possible by the Indianapolis Foundation, a CICF affiliate. We thank them for their generous support. Melanated Moments in Classical Music is proud to partner with the Coalition for African Americans in the Performing Arts and Morning Brown Incorporated. Melanated Moments in Classical Music is a production of Classical Music Indie. Our producer is Ezra Baker Trupiano. Our theme music was composed by Laura Cartman. <laughs>